uh, this is the first time that we've uh, done a podcast by Zoom, so uh-huh. uh, patience might be the, the, the order of the day, really. I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second series of the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. Well, today I'm talking to a television presenter who started his career in children's television and is now a highly successful sports presenter and commentator. Jay Comfrey is well known for his roles on CBBC shows such as Bamzuki, Fame Academy and Newsround, but has smoothly transitioned into presenting shows on sports ranging from Super Bowl, British football, the Grand Prix and of course the 2012 Olympics. And he has his own film production company, Whisper Films, and co-hosts a hugely popular podcast, The High Performance Podcast. So I'm going to try to find out today what the secret is of his high performance and how listening has shaped his extraordinary career. Jake, thank you so much for taking this time to chat with me. Now, obviously, everything is done virtually now, and, uh, and that's been a real steep learning curve. But I have to ask and start off by saying that it seems incredulous to me that you actually got sacked from working at McDonald's because of poor <laughs> communication. <laughs> and no. your, your, your whole career has been about communication. And it just seems to me as though, you know, someone has failed their GS, GCSEs maths or something and, and becomes an economist or the governor of the bank yeah. or something. So, so what went on there? <laughs> What was the turnaround? That's a good question. I mean, I almost don't know the answer to that question, really, because I think I was a young person who thought that what he was doing was okay. I thought I was working hard enough at school. I wasn't because I failed all my A-level exams. I thought I was working hard at McDonald's. I obviously wasn't. And I think that, I think that really what it was at that early age was, I think I was a late developer, but I also think I totally underestimated the importance of personal relationships so I would turn up to my job at McDonald's and probably think that you know my job was mainly cooking chips right so I just turned up and did that I didn't really think it was particularly important to create a great rapport with the store manager or something like that and I think maybe maybe in the end that probably cost me my job in in part I think because there's there's not too many people you can communicate with when you're eight hours a day cooking chips right But what's interesting is that, you know, when you say that you thought you had been working Mm -hmm. hard and and that's sort of an interesting thing, because, you know, there's did you feel that you you felt you were working hard because of the hours you devoted to to your schoolwork or your A-levels or studying or or was it were you aware of the quality of the work? Because this has a a massive impact on how we view success, actually. Yeah, you're, you're, you are completely right. And I think that I was at an age where I, I don't know who I was trying to prove it to, but I was almost at an age where as long as I made it look like I was doing enough, then that would be okay. And that's one of the biggest sort of learning curves for me, I guess, since that period to now is realizing that if you're pretending that everything's fine, you're only really lying to yourself. So I remember when I was doing my A-levels and I ended up with an E, an N and a U for my three A-level exams not great. But I remember my mum was a teacher at the school. So I came from a background where like, you know, academia was considered quite important. But I would sort of chill out, phone friends, watch telly, not do much. And then when my mum came home from her day at 
school because I was obviously, you know, on study leave, getting ready for my A-level exams. Mm. I'd walk downstairs and I'd go, oh, oh, mum, all day I've been exhausted. And she'd say, oh, you've been working all day, right? Have some toast, have a cup of tea, chat to me for half an hour, tell me what you've been doing. And it, it seems mad to me now that I kind of thought that was all right, but... Maybe that's just a really sort of immature mindset where I was still thinking, even at the age of 17, oh, as long as I make my parents think I'm working hard, everything will be fine. And obviously then the day of reckoning comes, doesn't it? Where you go and you get your exam results and you realise that you've effectively failed all three of those exams. And at that point, it's not it's not on anybody else apart from me. And maybe for some reason at that age, I was just thinking that just pleasing and impressing my parents was, was enough. I didn't sort of join the dots and realise that actually this is nothing to do with them. Me studying for my A-levels is nothing to do with my parents, is it? Because I'm the one that has to live with that for the rest of my life. And I actually now reflect on that sort of period of getting fired from McDonald's, failing my A-levels, as, as kind of the seminal, the seminal period in my, in my growing up, really. Mm, and that, that's really interesting because it seems that in an awful lot of cases where people, you know, progress in different fields and, and they become, you know, very influential in, in different ways, they, it, it's, it's often because of, you know, early sort of failures, if you want to call them failures, yeah, yeah, yeah. probably that, that period of, or, or that sort of situation where, you, as you say, you take responsibility. It's nobody else's, you know, doing, as it were. You've got to just take that responsibility. But, I mean, getting back to the media side of things, you know, was there this sort of gut instinct or feeling when you were at school that, that media was something that you might pursue? It's interesting because I don't remember being, certainly not being obsessed with being a TV presenter, but then people that I speak to, say to me, oh, I re- I'm not surprised you're on that you're a TV presenter because you used to say that, that that was what you were going to do. And I have to, I sort of think, did I? I don't even sort of remember having these ambitions or these dreams. I, you know, I at school, I did no drama. I did no music. I wasn't in any of the sort of clubs or none of the teams, anything like that. I mean, if you said to my teachers before I ended up on the TV, you know, four or five years after I left school, tell us about Jake Humphrey. I honestly don't think they would have had an awful lot to say because I was kind of absolutely run of the mill at, at that point. But what what was interesting was that when I did my um, work experience, which you do in year 10, you know, the year before you do your GCSE exam, so I would have been 15, something like that, I got this amazing glowing report about being the best worker. And I went to the EDP, which is the local paper in Norwich. So obviously there was a leaning towards journalism or media at that point. And it, although it was in the telesales department. <laughs> um, but I got this report back and it said the best work experience pupil that we've ever had. And my parents and my teachers be- between them were saying, "This, how is this the same, the same person that's kind of floating through his school days, you know? And then when I failed my A-levels, I got some work experience while I was retaking them at a channel called Rapture Television and it was in the really really early days of cable TV right at the very beginning of that that revolution so they really had no viewers and I went there and as I, I sort of explained the story and said look my A-levels have not gone well could I come and spend time with you here and they used to pay me cash five pounds cash to work all day Saturday and all day Sunday but it just worked for me. I loved the working environment. I was kind of able, for the first time ever, I think, I was able to see the direct correlation between input and output. And the more time that I put into it and the more time I spent with people. And a big thing for me now is 
personal relationships. You know, I try and build... Every, I, I've been amazed in my life that you create, say, a group of four or five relationships and you really nurture those relationships. And then one of those people, you know so well, they say, hey, come and meet a couple of my friends. And then you... And that opens the circle a bit. And then you get a personal relationship with a couple of those people and one of those people leads to someone. And before you know it, something incredible has happened that feels quite a long way away from where you started. But actually, you only have to go back maybe three or four steps of personal relationships and introductions and conversations to get right back to the beginning. I don't know whether your experience is the same, but you do those and then you realise this all comes from just spending time with people and trying to sort of give off a positive vibe. And I don't think there's enough of that in the world we live in at the moment, but it's incredible how the positivity you give off is the positivity you get back. And I don't think I found school a positive experience. So I wasn't a very positive person there. And in the workplace, I find it so positive and so enthralling. I love the, th- the thrill of it. And, and that's really led to where we are today. Absolutely. That's, that's really, really interesting. And I think you're right in that we all need people. And I think during this lockdown period that we've, we've all experienced is, is that we've really felt that need to connect, you know, the energy and and how that energy through something pretty disastrous has actually allowed some positive things to come through. But, you know, we all know that success doesn't happen in isolation. And I can see a lot of correlations between what you do and certainly in the music business where it is all about relations. You know, when you walk in to, uh, you know, an orchestra whom you've never played with before, in a venue you've never played in before, a brand new piece of music that you've never played before, and wow. somehow within three hours you have to work as a team, you know, yeah. to, get, to get this up to a level that is suitable for paying customers to come in and, and to give them that experience. So I totally get where you're coming from. And, and it's, it's a really interesting way where we can perhaps... I suppose, readdress or rethink about education because it is very compartmentalized yeah. and, and but all of this cross-fertilization, I think, is really important because it can bring and build relations. So, so it's really yeah. interesting what, what you're saying well, there. We have two, two little children at school and our, our boy is four and our little girl is seven. And when we go to their school parents' evenings, maybe it's because of what I've experienced and the way my life has has turned out. But when when they talk about where they're at compared to expectations, oh, I hate that sort of comparing my daughter or my son to millions of other children across the country. My only concern is what are they like as people? You know, sometimes, you know, sometimes when you meet young people, there's something just not, not right, not quite there. And it's like, it's almost like a lack of charm almost. And I think that that, is such an important ability to carry you through life, you know, that connection with people that that some young people haven't yet developed. And so I always say to them, look, that's great, and I love their reading and their writing, but I only really love their reading and writing because it pushes their imagination. That's why I think it's incredible. Whether Florence can join her L's to her F's, I wouldn't tell her this, but I honestly don't care. I just say to them, if someone falls over in the playground, is my child the first one there? You know, if someone looks like they're not being played with, is my child the one that says, come and play with us? That, that to me, is infinitely more important than, than anything on the academic side for them. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's just a wonderful thing to be thinking about, you know, on a Monday morning, for sure, really. Yeah. Um, do you, well, I mean, in a way, this is connected, because do you feel that 
you know, being overtrained in something in that, you know, do you feel there's a balance between listening to your own gut instincts, mm. even if it means making more mistakes or choosing options that, you know, you might look back on and think, oh, well, uh, there we go. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, yeah. is, is there that tendency to think that, oh, we've, we've got to become experts almost in, in something? I think, I think from my own perspective, I, I like to think I've become an expert in broadcasting and in presenting television programs because I think that it's that that allows me to really push the envelope to the limit. So I, I suppose I look at, and it's, I, I imagine it's really similar to your music career in that I kind of see television in two very distinct parts. There is the technical part, which obviously in music is hugely important, the technical side of things. But then there's the creative side. And I think that when you're on live television and you know there's millions of people watching and you're wearing an earpiece, so you may be getting six or seven or eight voices down your earpiece and you're thinking about timing because you know that the show has to end to the second. You're looking at both your guests and you're thinking, well, has that person spoken more than that person? I know that that guest told me earlier they've got something they really want to say on the show, so I must remember to do that. You may be looking at the lighting and you've noticed that as you lean forwards, you put a shadow over their face. So you just lean back a little bit to make that look a little bit better. You know that there's a graphic about to come up and you're trying to remember in your head what was on that graphic so that um, I can refer to it properly. I don't work with an auto cue. So you're also at the end of the conversation having to remember the link that you might have written 48 hours before. And by the way, the link you wrote 48 hours before might not feel right in the context of the conversation you've just had. So that needs to change. To me, all of that is what I would describe as the technical side of television. And a bit like driving a car, Mm. the the hours and hours and hours I spent on children's television and before that at Rapture TV, not really realising that I was learning and that I was picking up those kinds of skills so that it became second nature to think all those things I've just explained to you. I'm thinking all those things when we're on live television, but I'm not actively thinking them. That then allows me, I think, to really push the envelope of the creative side and to be a bit braver and to be be myself a little bit more. Or even one of the, you know, obviously this podcast is about music and about sound. I personally think the single most important piece of armour that I have as a television presenter is the sound of silence. So when someone gives me a really stunning answer, me saying nothing for two or three seconds and allowing that to sink in is is more important than anything that I can say at that moment or particularly in a sporting context you know we're realizing now how important sound is to live live sport because we're not getting any and we're being piped this artificial sound right if sound didn't matter they wouldn't be spending so much money piping artificial football sounds onto television screens and I think that's probably a fascinating thing for you really is that it clearly is nothing to do with the football but matters so much to people at home that they are they feel part of this experience that they're so used to. Um, I think that it's it's so so important sometimes for me just to say absolutely nothing. But the bravery to do that comes from feeling that I am so in control of the technical side of things that I can I can push the creative. Mm, that's so so interesting actually and I was actually going to ask you that with the um, progression that you've made from children's tv to the world of sport was that a a conscious decision or was it a a passion of yours and and are you a sports person yourself 
Okay, let me come clean and say I have zero sporting ability, okay? Um, and it was quite a difficult conversation when I first met with someone from BBC Sport because I had to say that I wasn't a trained journalist and I, and I hadn't been to university. And in fact, I'd got an E for my A-level English all those years ago. So that was a hard conversation. And then when it came to talking about my, um, my sporting endeavours, Again, I played one game for the school football team. But what I tried to explain to them was that all of the time that I'd been on children's BBC, what I'd been honing is a kind of an empathy, really, like an ability to share a story with people. And I, I honestly believe that, you know, because social media can be quite a difficult place sometimes, and particularly when it comes to being a football presenter, because people are so passionate about their football team and their football club that they, they seem to have a very intense opinion about anything related to it including the person who's presenting the show so I do get a a kind of a large amount of criticism and the criticism tends to have exactly the same tone to it either oh this guy is really um, arrogant or this guy is really smug or overconfident and I guess sometimes maybe you can look like that but I kind of think it's my job to be as confident as possible in the job that I do and the other criticism that I get Evelyn is oh he knows nothing about football And I don't claim to know an awful lot about football. My job is to facilitate the pundits who do know a lot about football and to get the very best from them. And that was really my my message when I first met with BBC Sport. I said, look, I just, I feel that I can share with the people at home the very, very best learnings from these sports people because I think I I have empathy. I'm coming at it from a totally different perspective. And I almost think it helps that I'm so bad at sport because if I was good, it wouldn't intrigue me that a footballer can do something amazing because I would be able to do it as well. So it's not that incredible. Whereas actually the fact that I can't get anywhere close to it is, <laughs> it is intriguing to me because I don't understand how they do it. And the final, final reason for really wanting to work in sport, and I wonder whether this is not dissimilar to, to your music career, is the thrill of the event. Like presenting television programmes is kind of fun. But to be at an actual event with 60 or 70,000 people and to see what that does to the human psyche and the human body and to see people rise to the challenge or at times fail under the challenge of the scrutiny is, in, is an incredible thing for me. And I, that's what I love. And I, I'm sure you're the same. The thrill of the live event is great, isn't it? Absolutely it is. And I think that is certainly, you know, magnified itself during this period when all the performances have come to a more or less full stop. And it's not quite yeah. the same doing it virtually, you know. So it is interesting because in a way, you know, when you mentioned that, well, you know, you want to bring that story to the general public and make them feel the passion, you know, make them feel feel and smell and taste the whole occasion through your words, you know, yeah. is, is an incredible skill because I was going to ask you, well, you know, are you extremely knowledgeable on, you know, Formula One racing or, or football or the Super Bowl or whatever? But, you know, I probably think not because it was yeah. such a lot to, to try and, <laughs> and digest. But the funny thing is, is that I suppose to compare in my own situation, when you play a music, sometimes the, the the real learning curve or the real moments of ah you know come from perhaps a person who who isn't a musician or who who mm. doesn't know anything about uh you know what what you yeah. do but it's it's that feeling really but do you feel that um your idea of success has changed because you're surrounded by 
so many extraordinary people, you know, where it is about a win or a lose situation. But that's kind of a dangerous thing to be. It's quite a, a, a you know, a, 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 it, it can be such a stressful, um, you know, scenario. But, but yeah. you know, I'm just wondering what your, your thoughts are there. My overriding thought when when we talk about comparing ourselves to others is that I think that we live in almost we live in a period where I think it's more difficult than ever to be ourselves because it's never been easier for other people to pass judgment on us. Uh, and that really comes from the social media world. And I, I think it's so dangerous and I worry really for my children growing up in a world where they're living a full and complete life, yet they're comparing their full and complete life to other people's lives distilled down to 15 second videos or beautifully crafted photos on their phones and it doesn't matter if you've been with your child who's been pooing and sicking everywhere and didn't sleep all night and it's all been horrendous what will people upload that one photo of them adoringly looking at their child who looks so serene and sleepy we then compare that moment of perfection to our own lives and it's so dangerous to compare edited altered reality to actual reality and I think I think on a personal level, I worry for my children and I think that that is a really dangerous game to get into. From my perspective, I've had to be really careful about comparing myself to the people I'm surrounded with because I'm sitting with or talking to or talking about Formula One drivers earning £40 million a year, um, footballers earning two or £300,000 a week, uh, travelling particularly in the Formula One circus with billionaire business leaders on private jets. It's it's really, really easy to feel that you haven't achieved very much when you're only looking at those people as your as your frame of reference. So the biggest the biggest thing for me is to make sure that I'm happy, and I I really am. And I think as I've got older, I'm now 41, almost 42. It's a lot easier for me to focus on the happiness rather than the achievement side of things and maybe that's because I'm really lucky and I do have I do live a lovely quality of life so it's easy to say um, but I've tried to kind of really reframe my thinking not to compare myself with others because the only person that really matters is my own opinion of myself right yes yes it's such an important message Jake I can't tell you it it, it really really is because I suppose with sport and you know, the competitiveness of being in the music business is, is you know, can be quite extraordinary, actually. And uh, you do lose all sense of, well, hold on a second. What, what is it that makes me tick? Or you, you sometimes feel as though you might be selfish thinking that. But actually, it's so important to listen to yourself, you know, Absolutely. before then Absolutely. you can help a situation or help others or whatever but, the case. There's also a challenge, I think, for, for the likes of you and I that, professional sports people don't have and it's that success or failure is absolutely black and white you know when you've succeeded you know when you failed because you've either lost or won you can feel you've done something incredible and then one critic because it's subjective one critic says oh Dame Evelyn was not on her game last night or has Dame Evelyn lost her touch or whatever it is they might say and there's no way of you saying well no I haven't because I won didn't I, I you can't say you, it's impossible because it's their opinion. And that's the same with my job. You know, people will look at it and go, ah, oh, it's not for everyone. You know, when I sit there and I talk about a sports event, you know, you have to remember someone's watching a, their team play a game of football and they've lost a final. And the first voice they hear is mine. 
Mm. Of course, the words that I choose in that moment, which I think are the right words, are not going to be the words that they would choose in that moment because they're coming at it from a completely different perspective. They're probably howling about a refereeing decision 25 minutes before that cost their team the game. Yet I'm focusing on the perhaps you know the approach or the quality or the ability wasn't there on the day, which a fan hates to hear. Mm. So of course I'm going to get criticised and learning to live with that is is quite an important thing from my own perspective. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I find that often the most important part of a performance is post-performance where you just have that moment, you know, to yourself to yeah. really digest. And, and it's, it's quite interesting because very often you're asked to attend, you know, a, a reception or a whatever. And actually what's going through your mind is, is almost reliving, you, you know, the performance. And, and I think you're right, but, you know, that the next day you get up and, and, the drawing board is then clear again. You start again, you know, because you, you know what needs to be weeded out. You know what needs to be sorted yeah. out. You know that gut instinct. You know what needs needs attending to. And it's, it, is, it is an interesting sort of scenario. And isn't it great also to get into that mindset, which takes a long time, actually, and I don't think you can do it when you're young, that mindset of, I know I made a mistake on that one, and I know I'm not happy with it, but tomorrow morning... I wake up and the great thing is I can put it right. And when you're young, oh, you dwell on these things too much, don't you? Mm, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I mean, with with all of the the success that you've had and are having as a presenter, you know, you've then pushed your boundaries even more by uh, setting up a production film company, mm. Whisper Films. So yeah. uh, again, was this you know, something that you felt, no, this this feels right to go on to this next level, this next step, or was it simply by accident? No, it was it was very much a conscious decision. At the time I was working in Formula One and I was working with this brilliant producer and both of us were frustrated with the quality of some of the stuff that we were being given. So the way it would often work in Formula One is that sponsors would be given time with drivers, uh, amazing locations, doing amazing things. And they'd offer us the footage. And we, of course, we'd want to accept it because it would be good for, for filling our TV show. But then the footage arrived and it just wasn't very good. And it was either badly shot or there was no story or it was plastered in advertising. But whatever the reason, it was not um, fitting of being put onto the BBC. And eventually I said to the guy, Sunnel, who's now even now the CEO of, of Whisper, I said, why don't we, instead of just accepting this, why don't we do something about it? And it was a great risk for him because he quit his job. Um, and we set a company up in the back bedroom of my house. And we simply went out and met all these teams. And we just we just were very clear and said, we think that we can do a better job than they've been doing, cheaper than, than they've been doing it. Um, and it was, it was a classic sort of example, really, a real world example of taking control, taking responsibility. And we go through our lives, don't we, moaning and groaning about the things in front of us. And we made the decision at that point not to moan or groan, but to go and to go and do something about it. And our time in Formula One was really crucial, I think, to the success of the business because Formula One is a world that operates with a growth mindset all about marginal gains. They genuinely do break their teams down into a thousand parts every week and work out how to improve the tiniest element of each of those thousand parts. And when you put it all back together, the increase in performance or the increase in victories or success is huge. 
and we've very much taken that mindset into our into our production company we really one of the one of the sort of phrases that we have internally and I excuse a mild swear word is just make shit happen just the external one is make it happen that's what we have as our sort of mantra but inside we say can't just make this shit happen just make and I think taking control and really going let's just but doing it in a really positive environment has been a real learning curve for us and I people often say what you know what's the success of the company it's the, the fastest growing sports production company in the country we've got almost 100 staff now and the staff is the reason the investment in people which takes us right back to our conversation at the very beginning about personal relationships there is no secret to what we've done at whisper it's all about investing in people and i often say from what i've learned with whisper is that every business every business is simply a recruitment business because it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in doesn't matter what industry you're in if you go and get not necessarily the best people but the right people if you go and get the right people then you will have the right business because early on we used to go for meetings and people would say look I think you're going to be great your ideas are amazing but we've never heard of whisper so we can't take the risk so we thought how can we convince people that and we live in a freelance industry very similar to the music industry we said, well, we're, this is a sort of, so let's just go and get the people that have been doing that job before, bring them into our business. And then effectively, we are, you know, we're not Whisper, we're the people that have been doing it. So we'd then be able to say, look, forget about the name Whisper. The team that we've created to produce this content are the best people in the industry. You know them all, they've all worked for you. So really, you're hiring them, you're not really hiring us. <laughs> And that, that is the biggest learning for us is that every business is a recruitment business. Absolutely. That's so fascinating, you know, to, to, for you to say that because it is so, so true. And it goes back to many of the points in, in the conversation mm. for sure. And I think that that's really inspiring because, you know, in a way it, it gives us the message that, well, every single day we wake up, we're able to make a difference somehow. Mm. You know, and, and I guess that's what it is. But we want to make a difference for other people, for ourselves, for our situations. And, and, uh, and, and that's really interesting. And I suppose in a way, you know, you, through your own podcast, the High Performance Podcast, which is hugely successful. And, and I guess you're, you're trying to draw out, you know, what it is that, that has made, you know, the guests that you've been speaking with really really amazing in what they've done with all of the highs and lows because you know all businesses have have peaks and troughs yeah uh, for sure but it's just keeping as you say just get going get that action going you know let let shit happens as you as you say yeah. um, or make shit happens but, right uh, but really you know there are no shortcuts in these sort of things but what i really like about your podcast is that you've teamed up with Professor Damien Hughes. And I think this is really interesting and a bit like the, the Whisper films, the, the key people that you have teamed up with um, and where they have had very, very different, extraordinary experiences. Um, and so I've really enjoyed the podcasts and, and thank, thank you for, for doing all of those. So, I mean, you know, what have you learned from speaking with the myriad of people that you you have yeah. done through your podcast series there's certainly some some traits that exist in all these people there's no doubt about that the two that stand out to me is relentlessness 
they are all absolutely relentless in their pursuit of what it is that they want. The second thing that you see all the time is is that they are totally committed constantly. So it's it's about being relentless, but it's about doing it with amazing consistency. Not relentless on a Monday and chilled out on a Tuesday, recovering on a Wednesday and relentless on a Thursday. It's consistent relentless relentlessness. And the reason why I really wanted to do this podcast was because I, I grew up sort of a teacher and a charity worker in a tiny village in Norfolk. And I remember I used to see people doing all the things that I one day dreamed of doing. And I used to think, oh man, I, I wonder what the secret is to being the greatest Formula One driver in the world. What's the secret to being such a successful businessman you can buy a Formula One team? What's the secret to setting up your own production company? What's the secret to being a world-famous percussionist? Well, guess what? There is no secret. And that was something that amazed me when I first started working in Formula One. It's the first time in my life that I'd been surrounded by all of these high-achieving individuals that I'd looked up to. And I just very simply asked the question. Um, I remember saying to Eddie Jordan, who ran the the Jordan Formula One team, and he was a self-made success story. What was the... What was the secret to um, being as successful as you have been? And he couldn't understand the question. And I said the same thing to Lewis Hamilton, who was racing in Formula One at the time. And again, he was like, uh, I don't know, really. And, <laughs> and I kept getting this same answer from people. And I realised that there genuinely is no secret to these people that have got to the very top, which I then thought, that is the single greatest thing I've ever heard, because it means that any of us can do it if we know how to get there and there's only one way to get there which is to start the journey to believe that you can do it and you know I can set myself crazy targets you know to to be on the West End stage in six months now the likelihood is slim right because I can't sing and I can't dance and I can't act but if someone said could you be on the West End stage in six months my answer would be yes because what I've learned from all these people is there's no point having the answer no in your head (laughs) because if you think no almost certainly going to be no if you think yes the chances are still slim. I still don't have the talent required. But by thinking yes, I'm a hell of a lot further to completing that journey than if I think no. <laughs> and that was really the reason for doing this podcast. I want people to completely understand that you can live the life that you really, really want to live if you start the journey, if you believe that you can do it, if you realise that there is no secret to these people's success, if you realise that it is there for anybody if you really, really impose your will, take 100% responsibility, mm. deal with the difficult times as well as the good times. Don't ever blame, don't look at fault. Don't think, well, I can't get there because of this person or because of that problem or because my life happened in this way. Take the responsibility and get there in spite of those things. Don't not get there because of them. It's a hard, it's a hard and in some ways, quite a brutal mindset, Evelyn, to get yourself into, but it is very rewarding. Yes, and I suppose it can be mistaken as being quite selfish as well, because there there are many, many, many moments whereby you have to be selfish. You need time to train, or you need time to practice, or you need time to do whatever it is that you have to do. It it doesn't just miraculously happen. But I suppose the, the challenge is for people to understand that we all have something we can do yeah. you know and it's finding that something so I, maybe the key is is 
discovering what that thing is inside ourselves that make us tick in the first place and then going because I think a lot of yeah problems is that well oh I don't know what I want to do or I don't want you know I don't know I'm not good at that I'm not good at that but and as you say the negativity then and the number of times that I say to people they say the same thing they say yeah but it's working out what I want to do and I say well what do you really want to do what do you really want to do and they might say something like well I I want to set up a chain of fashion stores but like that's impossible well there you go there's your answer that's what you want to do now you have to really believe that you can make it happen and you need to be relentless and you need to be consistent and you need to think about personal relationships and you need to read a lot you know almost every one of my big frustrations is the lack of reading that people do because if you don't read all you're doing is learning what someone else has already learned and written down and you can have the learning again and it's what happens with human beings isn't it We've all learned the same thing many, many millions of times over. And if we were slightly better at taking the learning from other people, it would move us so much further down the journey. So reading books of people that have done what you want to do and seeing what they've done, nine times out of 10, you will realize that they too were just like you. They felt that they didn't have the opportunity. They felt like it wasn't going to happen for them. They didn't know which way to go next, but they found a way. And, Mm. you know, finding a way is such an important thing. And, and being happy even if it doesn't happen because that's the other thing is you know it doesn't always happen and happiness is it's a it's a permanent challenge for some people yes it doesn't always happen but at the same time you know when you think of all the things the little things that um or not so little that you've learned along the way or you've realized about yourself resilience you know or um being able to look at the big picture and think okay well I gave that a jolly good go you know what I mean and I'm proud of that and and I think you know that that happens even if you're quite relentless with something is that Mm -hmm. things don't go your way a lot of times actually so but um but you know during the lockdown um period that over the past uh, several weeks now I mean do you feel that your listening has changed whether you're in your internal listening or connecting with others because we've we've not had that opportunity to be um, in connection with people in, in in the same way yeah I felt for a really long time that we're less connected than ever I, I remember tweeting not long ago that I went I, we live as you know in Norfolk and we went to Wells and I looked around and everyone was on their bloody phones. Yeah. I, when I left, I actually put a tweet out saying, can, can, can someone tell me what amazing thing is happening on everyone's mobile phones today? Because I can tell you that Wells Next to Sea looks absolutely stunning. But clearly, what's on people's phones is even more stunning because that's what they're looking at. And I think we've slowly slipped into this lack of really being present with people and really listening to people. Um, and I think that, I'd like to think anyway I don't know yet I think it'll take time because I always worry that we will just as soon as you know this pandemic is over or if there's um, a vaccine or if we're able to move around a bit more freely I am concerned people will slip back to their old ways but I do like to think that for the first time in a long time people have had to make more effort to listen to each other because they've not been able to be present and I think it's the biggest risk in meeting up with your mates all being on your phones which happens all the time and then thinking to yourself, right, I've seen my mates this weekend. Well, have you really? Like, do you really know whether one of your best friends is suffering with a mental health problem? Do you really know actually what your friends are thinking? And 
Have you asked them whether you can help them with anything? Mm. No, you probably haven't. You've shared a few beers. You've all been on your phones. You've taken some pictures for social media and you've gone home again. Yeah. You've been together, but you haven't really been together. Sure. Yeah. And I suppose with you and and having a young family, it's all about finding that balance between the use of technology because for for children, you know, at this point, it's like an extension of their limbs you know a mobile phone or an ipad or, or whatever so but it, it, it seems as though you've really kind of you understand this balance you know the, the pros and cons and, and the importance of that face-to-face listening yeah we've tried to get it right and actually our daughter our seven-year-old she did all of her lessons over zoom and she she did struggle with it and actually it was a really good opportunity for me and my wife harriet who's amazing with them to sit down and say listen you know how you really hated doing these lessons over zoom and she was like yeah i just didn't feel right so that is a really really good lesson in how wonderful it is to be with people and we didn't want to worry her so we're like look it won't be long till you're with your friends again and we keep trying to say oh it's okay the virus is slowly going away because what's at that age what's the point saying anything else you know we don't want to concern them too heavily but we were saying oh you know you will be with your friends again and you know what? when you get to be with your friends again just remember how it felt to only see their face over a screen and how wonderful it is to actually be able to cuddle them and to smell them and to hear them and to feel them. That's like, that's really quite an amazing lesson to be given when you're seven years old. I just hope that she and Sebastian both remember it. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a lesson for all of us, quite frankly. It really is. Jake, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for, you know, giving your time because I know that you are busy and and I really, really appreciate that. And it's been absolutely fascinating for me. And I think it's really cemented the fact of how much every sort of situation you know can connect with another situation Mm. how we can learn from other types of disciplines um and it's it's something that i really believe in and i'd like to nurture um you know so much more and and you've just absolutely been a massive inspiration so thank you very much and i just want to thank everybody who's tuned in today and i hope you've been inspired as much as i've been by spending this time with chain when you asked me to be on, I was thinking, oh, no, I, I have no musical talents. Um, it's not about music. I didn't even uh, ask you about music, actually. <laughs> I've moved into here. I'm sitting. This is what... Uh, oh, 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 lovely. My, my yeah. wife plays this. I have no discernible skill on it. So. I'd like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.